Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to the BBM Global Network with 25 years in broadcast audio and video production. Our passionate team creates content and marketing for the world of Internet talk radio. If you've got a passion, come join us at bbmglobalnetwork.com. The BBM Global Network. Your voice is now heard. Welcome to MD for Moms with your host, Dr. Carly Snyder. Reproductive psychiatry, integrative medicine, or just someone to talk to. Dr. Carly is here to provide moms with personal solutions so they may experience physical and emotional well-being and find joy in motherhood. Please welcome the host of MD for Moms, Dr. Carly Snyder. Welcome. You are listening to MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Snyder. I'm a reproductive and perinatal psychiatrist, meaning I work with women struggling with emotional symptoms throughout their reproductive years. I am also mom to three kids of my own, and you know, thanks to COVID and virtual learning, one of them may walk in at any time, but we're going to hope not. Um, this show, MD for Moms is dedicated to helping women enjoy life more, to maximizing health and wellness, and to improving women's relationships with themselves and with others. So throughout the show, I'm going to remind you that you are welcome to give us a call with any question. Live on air, the number is 866-451-1451. And we are continuing our Mama Docs on Call series where I introduce you to physicians who are also moms, and they're here to provide information and support gear to you and your family. Now, today, honestly, we're going to talk about what I think of as a pretty scary topic. It's one that I think no parent ever wants to have to discuss. It's important that we understand and know when something is concerning versus not, what have you. And so we are welcoming pediatric hematologist and oncologist, Dr. Julie Crystal, and we're going to talk about childhood cancer, among other things. Again, scary topic, but I think it's really, really important that we discuss it. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. What do you do? What does it mean to be a hemonc with kids? Yeah, it, it is a scary thing. Like, it's something when I'm out with people and they say, what do you do? Sometimes I want to just say something else because everybody kind of makes a face when I say what I do. So so pediatric hematologists and oncologists uh, take care of children with cancer and other blood disorders. Um, it's important to note we're also specialists in many other problems of the blood besides cancer. 
Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, that means, um, you know, seeing children uh, to evaluate them for concerning things and also taking care of children who already have a diagnosis of cancer and uh, getting them through their treatment and all of that stuff. So every day is a little bit different and there's a lot of variety, which, which I love about this field. Now, how did you choose this field? Because it's, it's not an easy one. Yeah, it's not. Um, the, it, emotionally, it's not easy. It's it's not easy on your life. It's very demanding. Uh, but for me, um, I, I love working with children. They are so resilient and they're so um, powerful. You know, adults who have devastating diagnoses, um, you know, they, they curl up in balls and they don't leave the couch. And kids um, go to the playroom and they go to the park and many keep going to school and they're so strong. Uh, and so I, I love that. It's inspiring every day. And um, I find the medicine really fascinating. Um, cancer is a, a, all the disorders are fascinating and treatment is changing so much. We're learning more every day. So, so medically, I find it really, really interesting. There's always something to learn. Uh, and I enjoy the relationship that I get to have with families. I, you know, you are with them through, you know, the, one of the worst uh, experiences of their lives. But uh, when all goes well, as it usually does with children, you get to see them through to the other side. And um, today I sent a patient who I treated for a brain tumor a while ago off to our survivorship program. And it's one of the best things about what I do and so many happy tears and in, in taking this young person who faced such a devastating diagnosis and sending them off out into the world. And so that's really, that's the reason uh, to do this. That's why we all do it every day is, is for those moments. Those moments must be, like, unbelievable. For our listeners, when we say pediatric cancer or childhood cancer, obviously there's a host of different types, but what are the most common, you know, pediatric cancers that you see? Yeah, so the most uh, in, in the U.S. and around the world is leukemia. Um, over a third of all childhood cancer diagnoses are leukemia, um, and that's about um, 3,500 uh, every year. Now, just to put that in perspective, um, in the U.S., you know, there's over 200,000 women with breast cancer every year. That's one adult diagnosis, and this is a third of, of children. So the numbers are so, so few compared to adult uh, cancer. That's why you hear less about it and you see less about it and there's less on you know TV about it because the numbers are just so much smaller. But leukemia is the most. Leukemia is also the most treatable. Uh, the cure rates are very, very high for leukemia now. Almost all children can be cured. So that's about a third. Another third um, is brain tumors, uh, which have a wide spectrum of uh, good, bad, and ugly. Um, and then another third is is mixed other kinds of um, uh, solid tumors and, and other rarer things. But leukemia is by far the most common. I mean, as you, I always think of leukemia as being a really horrible diagnosis to get, but one that is treatable, as you said. Like, you know, they, I always think of it as having high cure rates, right? But nevertheless, as a parent, I'm sure I would be beyond devastated um, to hear that you know, hear any diagnosis. Now, I'm surprised by the a third of children of cancers are brain-related. Mm, yeah. um, that's a huge number. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's one of, you know, again, it's a small number in, in the chances of, you know, you knowing someone or, or having it happen to, you know, someone in your family. But um, it, it is a large number of pediatric diagnoses. And, and many of those tumors are what we call low-grade tumors. They're not aggressive and they require very little in terms of treatment. Others are more aggressive, though those are, are thankfully much more rare. Um, but but it, it, brain tumors are, are much more common in children than people think. And treatment-wise, I mean, I'm jumping ahead for a second, but just out of, because I'm curious, do these kids typically need a surgical approach plus uh, chemo, radiation, or um, yeah, do they not depends. need surgery? Yeah, it depends. So for brain tumors, almost all of them do need surgery, um, what we call maximum safer section. You know, the brain is not an area you can just sort of hack away at, and sometimes there's tumor that it's not safe to remove. Um, but uh, for the most part, you know, m removing as most as you can is important, and then some tumors require chemotherapy and some require radiation, some require both, and some require neither. So it very much depends on the type of tumor, the type of cells that the tumor is made of. Now, later in the show, we're going to talk about risks, but um, before we get there, I want to ask, how do kids present, for example, with leukemia or yeah. with yeah. brain you know, involvement or something else? Is there some constellation of symptoms that parents should be aware of and should be concerned about if they present? Right. This is an important topic because I think every every parent um, has anxiety about certain things they may think are associated with, you know, a cancer and become afraid. But, um, you know, children with leukemia have uh, very commonly have fever um, and uh, fever that goes, you know, on and on uh, for weeks. Uh, they very commonly have bone pain, pain in their their legs, pain when they walk. Um, because their blood counts may be low, they may uh, have um, be fatigued and tired and pale. They may have bruising or bleeding. Um, and those are the most common uh, symptoms that usually prompt a visit to the pediatrician or the ER who checks the blood work and then sees something concerning. Um, but, you know, those are very run-of-the-mill things, right? My kids have a fever, well, pre-COVID, had fevers, you know, every other month. And so it is important um, to, to know that a day or two of fever is not concerning. Um, uh, you know, it, it's really a longer-term thing. It's several weeks of fever, typically, um, that's concerning. Brain tumors are much more challenging, unfortunately. By the time, you know, brain tumors are diagnosed, most patients have seen a couple of providers. They might have had an ER visit or two already. And that's frustrating to families, but unfortunately, it's, it's the nature of the way it is, right? Because every child who has a headache you know, out of 100 of them, not even one has a brain tumor. So we don't go getting an MRI on everybody who has a headache. But there are certain red flags, headaches that are persistent or increasing over, you know, weeks uh, to months. Headaches that wake a child from sleep are concerning. Uh, headaches that are associated with vomiting, um, particularly in the morning or after lying flat, are more concerning. Um, and any changes in development or skills. So a child who was walking and now uh, cannot walk or a child who's stumbling and falling, uh, a child who's having trouble with writing or with speaking, those signs would all warrant, um, you know, concern. Uh, but, you know, many children complain of headaches. And so it's very hard. I don't envy the general pediatricians who have to see kids who are complaining of headaches and they have to decide, you know, what to evaluate more and what not. Um, but, but we look for some of those other concerning red flags to decide when imaging is really necessary. 
Um, I mean, it, what a difficult decision. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, 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 too, don't envy. I mean, because as a parent, most parents probably want everything checked. Um, but that's yeah. not... Yeah. But there are negatives Right, it's to not that, always right? appropriate. Yeah, it's not appropriate. A child who's had a headache for a couple of days, you know, that goes away with Tylenol and is otherwise completely well-appearing, that's not, you know, we have we have resource issues in, in, you know, all health systems, and it's not the right way to spend our resources to have an MRI on every child with a headache. So I don't, I don't want parents to feel that their pediatrician should dismiss them. When you're concerned, you're concerned. But your pediatrician is doing the right thing when she says, let's keep an eye on this for he or she says, let's keep an eye on this for a little while. You know, let's watch it and see if it goes away, as most will, because that's the right thing to do is, is to keep an eye on it before you decide to go further. Now, what about weight change? Yeah, that's a tough one in kids because, right, they're growing and they're, they're gaining mm-hmm. weight all the time. So, so weight loss is associated with lymphoma, um, and lymphoma is, is fairly common, you know, in kids. It's sort of included in that leukemia lymphoma group because they're, they're related to each other. So it is very common, but weight loss has to be more than 20% for us to consider it a, a B symptom or a symptom of lymphoma and unintentional weight loss. So sometimes teenagers are trying to lose weight. That doesn't count. Um, but a child who's just not gaining weight, which is something I hear about a fair often amount of times, that's not concerning from an oncologic point of view. There may be other concerns about that, but that's, that's not what we're talking about with weight loss. It really has to be more than 20%, um, you know, for over a period of a couple of months, uh, for us to be concerned about it. And do, I mean, in terms of B symptoms, do they differ between kids and adults vis-a-vis night sweats? Weight loss, all of that, is that similar? The same, yeah, they're the same, right? So the B symptoms are, are weight loss of more than 20% unintentionally, um, night sweats that are drenching and, and meaning, you know, not just you wake up warm, but you have to change your sheets because they're soaking, uh, and fevers and certain, you know, they have to be more than 38.3 or 101 um, with unexplained causes. Um, and so and those are the same as the adult B symptoms. And, and kids present with those less often than adults, but they do have them. Um, and so that constellation of symptoms, you know, a weight loss that's really marked and drenching night sweats and, and fevers like that would be a good reason to have an evaluation. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I think um, everyone has heard, you know, I think social media has enhanced the amount that people are exposed to others, um, good and bad, right? And because of that, yeah. We, I mean, we've all heard about, you know, or a baby with cancer or, a, you know, a, a elementary school kid or a high school or whatever. Is there a certain age range that is at a greater risk for childhood cancers? So, no, they sort of peak at different times for different types. Um, so... So leukemia, um, you know, is common throughout the childhood years, whereas a certain type of other tumor called neuroblastoma is more common in, in the younger years. So, so there's different peaks for different types. Um, and social media has really changed things, I think, for all families dealing with this because everything is so visible for good and for bad. They get so much support that way, but they also maybe get a lot of misinformation, um, a lot of added stress because what they're reading about has nothing to do with their child. So there's a, there's good and bad sides to that, I think. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a break. You're listening to MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network and iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Center, and we are speaking 
to pediatric oncologist and hematologist, Dr. Julie Crystal. And after the break, what, you know, how, what symptoms are actually not so concerning, but parents often seem to worry about? And, you know, what about genetics? How does that get involved? Stay with us. Have you ever felt like no one is listening or you're not getting the honest attention you deserve? Do you even know the kind of attention you want or need? You are not alone. Alice Aspen March is here to help. Thanks to Alice, through her epiphany and research over the word attention, there are solutions to the attention dilemma. Worldwide audiences have been enthralled and engaged for over 40 years with her visionary and pioneering observations. The kind of attention we get and give is vital to improving our lives and society. Alice and her weekly guests review game-changing insights for transforming and improving our understanding of attention, providing techniques for creating healthier and empowering behavior. Get a new perspective on a mainstream word. Tune into Why Our Attention Matters for fresh and thought-provoking conversations every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern on BoldBraveMedia.com and the TuneIn Radio app. What if there were a super tiny device that could diagnose the brain and is smaller than a single human hair? What if you could see inside the brain to help an epilepsy patient during surgery or to help the fight against Parkinson's disease? Dr. Patricia Broderick is proud to announce the Broderick Probe, a biomedical and electronic breakthrough. Imagine a probe to help with the understanding and potential cure of brain-related diseases. To learn more, listen live to the Easy Sense Radio Show with host Dr. Broderick, Wednesdays, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Bold Brave Media Network and TuneIn Radio. And to help support the Broderick Foundation, please go to Easy sense.com and learn how with your help we can fight these horrific brain disorders that's easysense.com to learn more and help support the broderick foundation welcome back to md for moms on the bbm global network and iHeartRadio radio and TuneIn radio i'm your host dr carly snyder and we are speaking to pediatric oncologist and hematologist Dr. Julie Crystal. And remember, we'd love to hear from you if you have a question or a comment. The number is 866-451-1451. So is there any symptom that parents are often concerned about but really are not, really is, is actually rarely associated with cancer? Yeah, so I would, there's two categories of those things. One is little bumps, like what lymph nodes. Um, we see many, many patients in our office who are referred by their pediatrician for a swollen lymph node that somebody is concerned about. And, um, you know, the fraction of these that actually turn out to have lymphoma or any type of malignancy is so, so low. All of us, you know, lymph nodes are part of our immune system. When we get sick, even if we don't feel sick, sometimes our body's just fighting off some germs. Some of these lymph nodes get big. Um, and that's completely a normal body process, and it's not a sign of cancer. But many, many parents get concerned. They feel a bump. They say felt a bump on their child's neck, and they are very concerned it's cancer. So what I would say is, you know, those those bumps that are small that come or go or even stay on their own, one little bump like that is is really never a concerning thing, and that's something parents should understand is just a normal part of our immune system and not a concern. 
The other thing is minor alterations in blood work. So pediatricians check blood counts on most patients every year. They see something is a little bit low. Their white blood cells are a little bit low, um, and they send them to us for evaluation. When it's just one type of cell like that um, and it's low you know, in a, in a minor way, again, that's almost never, ever, ever something bad. But the parents are terrified, and they're sent here, and they have to sit in our waiting room of really cute, bald kids, which is terrifying, I'm sure. And so um, I, I, I wish that all families would understand that you're, you know, your pediatrician is just being thorough. They're asking us to take a look, but almost never does that turn out to be anything bad. And, and so it's just, you know, part of being thorough. And I guess now that parents and everybody has more access to lab results, those who are, uh, you know, who are not medically trained and get a CBC result where, you know, the ANC, whatever, some level is low, must raise alarms for parents that really don't need to be raised. Um, yes, exactly. They see that, you know, the average ANC range is 1,500 and theirs is 1,200, and, and that's completely fine. But they, they have, you know, start to panic because if you look up neutropenia, leukemia is one of the first things that will come up. But that child, I promise, with an ANC of 1,200 does not have leukemia. So there is a lot of um, unnecessary fear uh, that happens just by that exact process. Parents see blood work. They see something flagged as, as abnormal. They Google it, and then, you know, something bad comes up, and they're certain that's what their child has. And so, you know, I wish that parents would, you know, talk about those things with their pediatrician trust your pediatricians that if something is slightly abnormal it's not a sign of of something serious in almost all cases you know we ask the pediatricians hey why don't you repeat that blood work in a few months if you're worried about it it's not something that we need to evaluate right away yeah i mean i think as a parent seeing those numbers but not knowing it just, you know, Google, Dr. Google is not helpful in those scenarios, right? Like, because exactly. yeah. I always say, like, you know, WebMD, if you stub your toe, you're dying. Um, yeah. You can basically make a link between a stub toe and death if you, you know, look hard enough. And obviously, stubbing your toe is not associated with death. Um, right. But it is still so scary, Right. And that's why right. it's, it's so important to have a good connection with your pediatrician such that you can call and be like, ah, uh, what is this? And they can, right. you know, exactly. ideally help you. Now, yeah. if a child does have cancer, right, let's say they, they've had leukemia or perhaps, you know, a, a, you know, a blossom, whatever, right, are they at an increased risk of malignancy later on in life once this primary you know, episode is done with is yeah. Unfortunately, they are, but not because they had a cancer. Because It's because of the treatment that they get. So uh, most of the time, and this gets a little bit back to the genetics issue because it's all related, almost all of the time, childhood cancer is just a fluke, random, sporadic thing. And there's no rhyme or reason why it happened to your child and not another child. Almost all of the times, it's not inherited from somebody in the family. It's not related to genetics. It's not because of not eating organic food or where you live or or cell phone use or anything like that. It's just a fluke random thing. And I think that's one of the hardest things for families to accept. Um, I make a big
big point of stressing that when I'm giving a family a new diagnosis, that there's nothing you could have done to prevent this, and there's nothing that could have changed this. This happened inside the child's body for reasons that we don't understand. So that's the most important thing. You're not at risk for other cancers because this was just a fluke thing. However, unfortunately, some of the treatments that we use do put you at increased risk of other tumors or cancers later on, and that stinks. Um, and, you know, in the 1950s, leukemia, you know, the survival rate was zero. And now for standard risk leukemia, you know, more than 95%. And that happened from learning to use very aggressive therapy. But what we've learned now is obviously that these therapies come at a high cost and that these survivors are facing many health issues down the line. Um, and that's where the role of long-term survivorship programs comes in and things like that. But for example, radiation uh, that we might use for lymphoma or a brain tumor or neuroblastoma does put you at risk for developing other cancers later on from the radiation. Um, some types of chemotherapy also put you at risk for developing other kinds of cancers later on in life. So that's hard to accept, and it's something we discussed with families at the time of diagnosis when we're explaining, you know, this is the treatment that your child needs. We have to talk about those things. And um, unfortunately, there are risks that we that we swallow because we know that we have to use that life-saving treatment, even if it comes with a chance of something devastating coming along down the line. And when you say down the line, are we talking about 10 years, 20 years? Like what? It, it depends. Yeah. So from, yeah, from radiation, it's usually about 10 years later uh, that, that other secondary tumors can develop. Uh, from other things, there are certain types of chemotherapy agents that can actually cause a secondary kind of leukemia. That usually happens within three to five years of therapy, so a little bit sooner. Um, there's other things like skin cancer that can happen, which is usually a little bit, you know, farther down the line again. So unfortunately, you know, even when we tell a patient you're cured and you're moving on, like I told my patient today, to survivorship and isn't this wonderful news – you know, then when they get to survivorship, the role of survivorship is to talk about all these things that they're at risk for and what kind of monitoring do you need. So monitoring for survivors of childhood cancer is lifelong um, because of all of the problems that they're at risk for. So they will have all kinds of screening and monitoring for cancers and other problems uh, for the rest of their lives. And do they continue in screening from the point in which they are cleared of their primary cancer or do you wait some period of time? Yeah, so we typically, the, our cutoff in our program is three, you have to be three years off of treatment in order to go to survivorship because that's your biggest risk for relapses in those first few years. Uh, but once you pass that three-year mark, your chances of, of relapse are very, very low. And so that's when the need for oncologists is lower and the need for this type of ongoing long-term screening is more. So that's our cutoff is, is we keep them in oncology for about three years and then we move them on to survivorship. Um, but other oncology programs might use, you know, three years or five years, but somewhere around there is where um, we say that the risk of recurrence is now much lower, so now you need this lifelong monitoring. I mean, that must be hard for parents and kids to, to stomach, but it is not an option, right? Like you life-saving treatment first. Right, mm. right. And, yeah, and that's one of the hardest parts. You know, when we do a talk with a family explaining a new diagnosis and this is the treatment, you know, we go through this list of these horrible side effects, you know, and some of them are temporary. Okay, the child's going to lose their hair. That's not a big deal. Some of them are lifelong, your risk of other cancer, infertility, um, organ damage, heart problems, you know, and so 
I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I think it must be so hard for families to hear all of that. Um, and then the bottom line is we say, but we have to do it anyway. Like, I, I'm just telling you all this information so you understand, but this all has to happen anyway. Um, and so most families, they've actually done studies about this, and families remember about 5% of what yes. you say in that initial conversation. We call it a day one talk when we're discussing a diagnosis and treatment um, because they're so emotionally overwhelmed. So I try to say the most important things first and say, I understand you're not going to remember any of this, but I have to discuss it with you. Um, but but it, statistically, they, they don't remember any of it. So they're sort of, at some point, you're sort of starting over. Uh, to say, okay, now we have to talk about all these things that are going to come after treatment because they may not remember any of it. Yeah, that five percent—that—that's so true, right? I mean, it's shock. Shock is real. Um, now, what about so the child has their an increased risk, but from a purely uh, familial genetic standpoint. Um, does if a parent had a history of pediatric cancer does their child have that risk so it's it's very much depends on genetics um and there are certain inherited cancer predisposition syndromes which is what we call them you can inherit a gene from your mother or your father that makes you more likely to develop cancer and patients where we know that a family member has those do go into screening because they're more likely to develop a cancer and the same goes with certain conditions for example children with trisomy 21 or down syndrome children with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, another syndrome, children with neurofibromatosis. There's a whole host of um, other disorders that are more likely to develop cancer. And so patients who have those do undergo specific screenings and monitorings because we're aware that they have a much higher likelihood than the general population of developing uh, a cancer. But we, we test all patients. Um, we, we send cancer cells from their either their leukemia or their solid tumor for molecular testing. Um, and that's routine here and at you know, any large cancer center where we look for any signs that there might be an inherited uh, cancer predisposition syndrome. Because you might not know, right? Sometimes families aren't aware that there is that gene in their family. So um, it's not often that a cancer in a child is due to one of those things, but we, we test for it, um, which I think is helpful. It puts families a little bit at ease. I say, you know, if, we're, if we find something in this testing that's concerning, then we're going to test, you know, the rest of the family and everybody else and look. But most of the time we don't. And then we can confidently say to the family, you know, this was not inherited from anybody. You know, no one else is at high risk in the family. The child is not at high risk for other problems because we know this was just a, a sporadic fluke thing. You mentioned environmental exposures earlier. I think that is definitely something that people get very worried about. And can we, are there any, let me rephrase, are there any environmental, actually, I'm going to hold my question about environmental exposures because we have to take a brief break. You're listening to MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network and iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Center, and when we return... Um, we're going to find out about it, the risks associated with environmental exposures, if they you know exist, as well as banking your cord blood. Why, why should you or should you not? What's the benefit? Um, stay with us. 
According to the American Nurses Association, there are approximately three and a half to four million nurses in the United States. So where do all these nurses work? What kind of roles do they have? What kind of education and training help to prepare them for so many different settings? What kind of impact do nurses have on patient outcomes? The World Health Organization has announced that 2020 will be the year of the nurse, honoring the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale, an international initiative called Nurse now is underway to raise the profile of nursing. The National Academy of Medicine has convened a committee to create the future of nursing 2020 to 2030 that will focus on how the nursing profession can create a culture of health, reduce health disparities, and improve the health and well-being of the U.S. population. Learn more and join Joyce Batchelor on All About Nursing Wednesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on the BBM Global Network. Mike Zorick, a three-time California state champion in Greco-Roman wrestling at 114 pounds. Mike, blind since birth, was born in Hartford, Connecticut. He was a six-time national placer, including two seconds, two-thirds, and two-fourths. He also won the veterans folk-style wrestling twice at 152 pounds. In all these tournaments, he was the only blind competitor. Nancy Zorick, a creative spirit whose talents have taken her to the stage and into galleries and exhibitions in several states. Her father, a commercial artist who shared his instruments with his daughter and helped her fine-tune her natural abilities, influenced her decision to follow in his footsteps. Ms. Zorick has enjoyed a fruitful career doing what she loves. Listen Saturday mornings at 12 Eastern for The Nancy and Mike Show for heartwarming stories and interesting talk on the BBC. BBM Global Network, doing what she loves. Listen Saturday mornings at 12 Eastern for The Nancy and Mike Show for heartwarming stories and interesting talk on the BBM Global Network. Welcome back to MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network and iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Center, and we are speaking to Dr. Julie Crystal. And if you have a question, there is still time to give us a call at 866 451 one four five one. So just before the break, I began to pose the question of whether or not there are any environmental um, exposures that may increase the risk of cancer. We know people talk about them often, right? Anything from sugar to living near, you know, uh, cell towers and what have you. Are any of these things legitimate? So mostly no. Um, there's many that have been tested. For example, you know, sugar is such a, a, pomp, a common one that people ask about. Uh, there's no evidence. Um, yes, cancer cells eat sugar. So does every other cell in our body. Um, there is no evidence that a lower sugar or sugar-free or gluten-free diet or any of those other types of diets uh, reduce the, the risk of developing cancer in children at all. Um, most of the other things, you know, that parents bring up are also have been tested and totally de- Bunked. I think there are some some very real um, concerns about, you know, for example, radioactivity, nuclear activity, radiation exposure. But the kind that's just in your day to day life is not enough to be uh, significant enough to cause cancer. Um, but for for sure, we know that people who are exposed to, you know, nuclear power spills or or big radiation events, those those people are more at risk. But in for for regular, you know, people who are are living, you know 
in areas that are safe, that have yeah. safe drinking water. Um, you know, there's nothing in your water that's causing cancer and there's nothing, you know, in your dirt that's causing cancer. Um, and it's not related to vitamins and, you know, pretty much everything that we've looked at and explored in terms of things like that uh, turns out not to, not to be a risk factor. Um, that's really important to know, I think, because as you said, people, people have opinions and when there is a cancer diagnosis, so many people want to help in their way of helping is by giving their opinions, which often include cause, causality, but yeah. Yeah. And it's so important to remove that blame from the family so that they understand that truly there's nothing, you know, that, that they could have done to prevent this. And it had nothing to do with the food their child ate or where they live or any of that, because, um, you know, that's a, a tremendous amount of guilt for any family to feel. And so it's, it's really important that we stress that as the oncology team, that, that, you know, we've looked at those things and those things had nothing to do with this. Are there any exposures in utero that increase the risk of cancer later on? So the same kinds of things, radiation, um, you know, nuclear activity, those are the major ones. Um, there are some medications that are high risk, and so that's why it's always important for pregnant women to discuss medications uh, with, um, with their, their uh, providers. Um, but, but other than those major things, it's the same kind of stuff. You know, some, some, um, some children have cancer at a very young age or even immediately, you know, after birth. And those are typically not thought to be related to anything that happened during pregnancy. And so shifting gears a little bit, cord blood banking. Um, misunderstood, I think, by many. Um, yeah. I, I would say <laughs> I, I remember we banked my son's cord blood. He's my oldest. And then with my second... You know, she, my, my oldest was like two and a half and I kind of, it, I missed the boat and they were like, oh, we could see if we have a kid hanging around, but they didn't. Um, and then with my third, I wasn't sure if there was any benefit, but I was like, what the heck? But she was a preemie and, you know, everything was happening so quickly that that did not occur. Um, yeah. And I think for at least my, myself, I'm sure many others, the question becomes like, if you don't have cord blood banked or you only have a little bit of whatever, are you at a disadvantage or, you know, and if you do have cord blood banked, you're, is there something really beneficial about that? Yeah, so this is a really important topic because there's so much misinformation out there. In general, for people who do not have inherited genetic problems, we do not recommend private cord blood blanking for anybody. It is not beneficial. And unfortunately, cord blood banks are private for-profit businesses, and they prey on a lot of fears of people, and that's how, they, that's how they're successful. But I'll try to explain it um, a little bit. So, so cord blood is used for uh, transplantation, for doing bone marrow transplants when you want to wipe out somebody else's bone marrow and replace it with a new bone marrow. However, your own cord blood is not useful to you. The reason is because, let's say one of your children uh, develops leukemia, right? We would never use their own cord blood. In fact, when a child develops leukemia, we have to notify cord blood banks so they can destroy any cord blood that might be there because the concern is there may be those pre-leukemic cells even in that cord blood and that we wouldn't want it to be used. So if your child has leukemia, your cord blood is no good. Now, let's say you wanted to use your cord blood for a sibling. Now, siblings have about a 25% chance of being a bone marrow match, and a matched sibling is the best source 
of stem cells in the case of needing to do a bone marrow transplant. However, the bone marrow is the best source of stem cells and the transplants with bone marrow are greatly preferred. So if one of the siblings is a match, then we would just take their bone marrow and we would not use their cord blood. So you have almost zero chance of, of ever using your own cord blood with the technology and what we have today. The, the, you know, the only thing that I cannot answer to is people say, well, what if 10 years from now we develop something really cool that you can do with cord blood, then I'll have it saved. And okay, I don't have an answer for that. Then you'll have it saved. But that's a whole lot of money um, for, for this hypothetical, maybe we're going to develop something in 10 years. Right now, today, there is no use for you for your own cord blood. The best thing you can do is to donate your cord blood to the public bank. Now, not all hospitals do this. So when you're delivering a baby, it's important to ask, can I donate my cord blood to the public bank? Because that's where you would turn. God forbid you needed a, a child of yours needed a bone marrow transplant and no sibling was a match. Um, and there was also no donor who was a match, but maybe there was some cord blood in the public bank that was a match. And that's where you would turn as the public bank if you needed that. So, so the best thing you can do um, to help yourself and everyone else around you is to donate your cord blood to the public bank. There is no benefit to your own family for saving it. And how often, I mean, siblings helping other siblings, right? I think it's, there are a lot of, you know, dramas on TV that will use this as an example of something happening, right? Like it's, it feels very traumatic. Um, is it in fact as traumatic as it seems? I, I think um, yes and no. I think cancer is very traumatic for siblings. Um, it's under uh, acknowledged and underappreciated because the focus is so much on that sibling who's you know, life needs to be saved. But cancer is extremely traumatic for the siblings. The siblings' lives are turned upside down much in the same way as the, you know, the, the sick child. Uh, their parents are suddenly disappeared. You know, the focus is entirely on this other sibling. Um, they're concerned about the other sibling. You know, they, there's just so much stress for them. So it is, I think, even regardless of whether they have any role in the treatment, it's, cancer is, in, is incredibly devastating to the siblings. In fact, there's a wonderful um, camp called called um, Camp Sunshine that's up in Maine. Unfortunately, it was closed last summer, but um, they run free camps for the entire family. And one of the things that comes out a lot in the support groups and the sibling support groups is just how traumatized the siblings truly are. Um, but um, then, then there's a whole other dimension to it when the sibling then becomes a bone marrow donor. And that's a happy situation most of the time because, you know, those are the best donors is a matched sibling. Um, and so there's a lot of support for those siblings as well. We have, you know, psychologist teams and child life teams and a lot of people who really work with the siblings uh, to be sure that they, you know, they understand what they're doing and, and all of that kind of stuff. But so I, I think the trauma isn't, isn't, you know, TV trauma. It's not, um, the way it looks on TV, but it's real. It's very, very real to these families, um, whether the sibling is helping in the care or not. And do you, from the get-go, or is there a certain point, recommend that both a child who has cancer as well as their family members start in therapy at the time of diagnosis or later on? Is later on because right now the cure rate for leukemia is so high that there is a you know it's a small number of patients who need a bone marrow transplant. Um, there is a certain type of leukemia where it is more common to need a transplant. Sometimes those patients we will test 
you know, closer to the beginning. But for standard, um, you know, acute leukemias, acute lymphoblastic leukemias, only patients who have disease that comes back after therapy, a relapse um, or a refractory, they don't respond to the treatments that we have, you know, at that time we would begin testing um, the patient and the siblings. There is a way for parents to be a bone marrow donor. It's called a haplotransplant because it literally means half. So you, you know, you have half a match to your mother and half a match to your father. So that's not as good as a sibling who's a full match, but um, we have a, a way to use parents when there is no full match sibling and there is no full match in the bone marrow registry, then we do often use a parent who's a half match as a bone marrow donor. Um, that must also be a half, I mean, having that option, even if it's not, you know, 100%, that still sounds like, you know, I'm sure as a parent, very... Um, good, like exciting, right? That like you can yeah, actually parents help. Want it. A... Yeah, they do. They do. I think parents really, um, they're happy to, to do that and feel that they've done something. On the other hand, um, when it doesn't work or a child relapses again after a transplant, I think it's hard for the family member, whoever was the donor, because no matter what we say about how it had nothing to do with that, um, people put blame on themselves that, you know, their cells didn't work or whatever the case may be. And, and that's unfortunate. It's not true at all. But, um, you know, families feel that way. That, that is that is sad. And I'm sure it's just a natural feeling. But it's probably hard to talk someone out of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are there, in adults right now, there are, you know, more and more targeted therapies focused specifically on the patient's genetic uh, form of cancer. Is that happening with kids as well? Yeah, and it's so awesome. <laughs> it's really exciting. Um, one of the, the things I do in, in my oncology group is I run the phase one and phase two trials, which are experimental therapies. And most of these targeted therapies are still in that realm. Some are now approved and standard use, but many Many are still experimental, um, but getting to, to use those targeted treatments, um, I've had many patients who didn't respond to anything else um, and responded to one of those. Or, for example, I have a baby who was quite young, was only a couple of months old, presented with a very large tumor behind the eye. Um, we biopsied it and found out what it was, and there's a targeted treatment option. So she's having no chemotherapy, no central line. She takes a medicine by mouth twice a day, and her tumor is almost gone. So that is such a satisfying and wonderful part of the science of what's happening right now in oncology. Um, and we hope that things, you know, we learn more and more about each one of these mutations, each one of the targets, how to attack it, and we can move away from some of the toxic treatment and use those things more. That's super exciting. Um, we are going to take a brief break. You're listening to MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network and iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Center, and we are speaking to Dr. Julie Crystal. And after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about the emotional impact and what parents can do to try and lessen it. Don't go away. Are you struggling to care for elderly parents or a spouse? Do you wonder if being a caregiver is making you sick? Are you worried about taking time off work to care for elderly parents and balance work, life, and caregiving? Has caregiving become exhausting and emotionally draining? Are you an aging adult who wants to remain independent, but you're not sure how? I'm Pamela D. Wilson. Join me for the Caring Generation radio show for caregivers and aging adults, Wednesday evenings, 6 Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central, and 9 East. 
Eastern, where I answer these questions and share tips for managing stress, family relationships, health, well-being, and more. Podcasts and transcripts of The Caring Generation are on my website, PamelaDWilson.com, plus my caregiving library, online caregiver support programs, and programs for corporations interested in supporting working caregivers. Help, hope, and support for caregivers is here on The Caring Generation and PamelaDWilson.com. Global Glory, that's the work of Dr. Marina McLean, COO of Global Glory, whose calling is to serve God. A first-generation British-born Londoner of Jamaican descent, Dr. McLean inherited the hunger for the Word from her father, who was a Bible teacher. Growing up, her home was filled with missionaries from the Caribbean islands and America, and she travels the world preaching the gospel. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree in theology and an honorary doctorate of divinity and Christian counseling from Friends International Christian University. Dr. McLean is also a songwriter and recording artist, and her songs are written during summits and conferences in the presence of God. She's recorded three worship albums to date and is in ministry for 28 years alongside her husband, Dr. Rennie McLean, who shares her passion. Visit www.globalglory.org or on Facebook at Global Glory. Call 866-244-5679 and feel the glory. Welcome back to MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network and IR Radio and TuneIn Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Snyder, and we are speaking to pediatric oncologist and hematologist, Dr. Julie Crystal. Um, I wanted to be sure before we end to find out more, you know, for a family who has a child with a cancer diagnosis, should they... Uh, plan on having family therapy early on? Should they try and get siblings and the child with this illness in therapy, psychological therapy that is, early? Should they wait to see how kids do? What's the best approach to just minimizing the emotional impact that all of this will have? Yeah, because it's a huge emotional impact, um, you know, even even on young kids. So there's a lot of different components to it. And the best thing is to really go from the start. So we use, you know, child life teams in the hospital who do play therapy with kids when they have to have a procedure or something done. They, they reenact it with them and, you know, show them on dolls and they do so many things like that to help kids at their own level process it. Um, and then there's sort of the next, you know, step from that, which is actual psychological counseling. And like most programs, we have a large, um, you know, program for, for um, psychology um, and, and many family members, siblings, and patients use that. Um, there's also, you know, psychiatry, which can be important. Some, some kids, especially teenagers who are having a tough time, they may need medication for sleeping or anxiety or something like that. And so psychiatry is an important part of it. You know, it really needs to be um, a very multi-pronged approach. Um, and because so many people struggle, you know, the family members struggle and the kids struggle. Um, and then there's a struggle when therapy's over and, you know, you've been in and out of the hospital all this time and your life has been very structured and suddenly it stops. And for teenagers who suddenly get thrown back into the normal world, you know, their, their friends haven't had to deal with this. They have no idea, you know, what's been going on. And so I think that's really hard. 
So people really need, you know, all of that aggressive intervention. Um, and sometimes the kid is, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then two years later, you know, they're not fine and, and they start having issues with other things. And so it can crop up later. So it's really important to be attuned to it, um, to use all the resources that are available um, and try to support, you know, everybody in the family as best we can. That is so important and so I think, yeah, it, it's just, it's really, um, everyone's impacted and therapy can be really helpful. Um, now, if there were any salient points from today's show that you really hoped our listeners walked away with, um, what would they be? Um, I, you know, I think the most important thing is childhood cancer is very, very rare. Um, and so, you know, the odds are very much in your favor that when your child has a fever um, or a headache or something like that, to not be um, overwhelmed with, with concern or fear, you know, unnecessarily. And, and listen to your doctor and see your doctor when you're worried. But, you know, when your doctor's reassuring you that things are okay, you know, you can trust that. The chances of it being cancer are extremely, extremely, extremely low. Um, so I think that's the most important thing. This is, it's rare. Um, it's not, you know, the most likely thing. Common things happen commonly. That's, that's what we like to say. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the most, that's really the most important thing to remember. So on a personal level, you are a mom and a pediatric oncologist. That must be really emotionally difficult. I mean, from one realm to the next, how do you do that? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard sometimes. There was definitely, I, I noticed the, the difficulty and the change when I had um, kids, um, and most of the time I'm able to maintain really good separation. I, I do not imagine, you know, my child in those situations. I just don't because I, I can't do it. Um, my patients are totally separate and, and I'm there for them when I'm there for them and I'm there for with my kids when I'm there with my kids. Um, and so I just really, really try to keep it separated. But there's times, of course, you know, that doesn't work. I was very, very, very pregnant with my third baby, and I was taking care of a brand new newborn baby who had a very uh, bad tumor, and and I I really struggled with that and really had a hard time and did have some unnecessary fears that I normally don't have about, you know, my kids at that time. So, So I'm not perfect at it. You know, it's an evolution. Um, of trying to make sure that I take care of myself and when bad things happen at work that I take care of myself and we're, you know, really supportive in our group of taking care of each other um, so that, you know, we can really help each other through those times because when, when a child dies anytime, it's really devastating and it's really hard and so we all have to, to look out for each other. So um, I think, you know, I think the most important thing that I do is just sort of keeping things separated and, and, and not perfectly. My kids have heard way more about kids with cancer than any young children ever should. Um, and they hear a lot of things on the phone or when I'm on call or, or whatever. And um, we try to be very honest and frank about, about what's going on. My husband's a physician also with his patients, with my patients, you know, they, they know more than they should know. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't picture my kids in those scenarios. And, and I'm pretty good at ignoring it when things, you know, when they have a fever or something, you know, I'm able to not let it go to them like, oh my gosh, this is something bad. I'm, I'm able to keep it separated that way. Which is a blessing, right? I I do think in medicine, there's a point in residency where most of us, for some reason or another, learn how to compartmentalize. Because if you can't, it makes life very difficult. Yes, Um, yes. And 
that compartment sometimes gets a little hazy. Yeah. But in general, I mean, I think it's an important thing. But what you do, obviously, is super heavy at times, I imagine. Yeah. Now, are there any rep- reputable websites that you would recommend for people who want to learn more about what we discussed today? Because as we said, like Google is not always your friend. Yeah, so that's it's a great point. And one of the first things I say to families when um, I'm talking to them is, please don't Google. <laughs> Let me tell you where to go for information. Um, you know, we provide families with with resources and websites and things like that. Because when you Google, you probably read about things that have nothing to do with your actual situation or or are also just not not reliable information. So there's a website called Cure Search, and it's just CureSearch.org, um, and that's that's run through the Children's Oncology Group and um, some government things that you know uh, really good quality information um, that provides a lot of important resources. The Children's Oncology Group is another group that provides really good information. The American Cancer Society and those um, groups are good, but they're geared towards adults, and so their websites have a small amount of information on kids, um, but they do have some. There's another group called St. Baldrick's, um, and they're a fundraising group. Some people may have heard of them, um, but they do wonderful fundraising and support for um, pediatric oncology research, and they have some information um, on their websites as well. So those are all really good sources. But when you Google and you go to some random site, you know, that just somebody put something there about their experience or whatever, it's really not good quality information. Well, Thank you for putting out the um, way that people can also help because I wanted to ask you that question, but we're running out of time. Very quickly, for someone in the New York area, how can they find you? Um, they, you guys, if, if it's for something <laughs> professional or work-related, you can um, contact uh, my office. I work at Cohen Children's Medical Center in Long Island. Um, I'm part of a large group of pediatric hematologists, oncologists, and transplant doctors here, um, and I'm happy to um, help in any way uh, you can reach out to me here. Excellent, and thank you so much. This was such an informative show. I'm sure our listeners and I, I mean, I can say I got a lot out of it. Um, remember, if you missed any of this show, you can always download it as a podcast on iTunes along with prior episodes. Tune in again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or BoldBraidMedia.com slash shows slash MD hyphen four hyphen moms. You know, you could also check iTunes at any time. As I said, there are lots and lots of shows banked from, I don't know how many now, but we're, we're, we're not 200. So, you know, just search MD for Moms and you will find it. Remember, you can also always find me at my website, carlysnydermd.com, and you're welcome to email me at cs at carlysnydermd.com. I'm happy to answer any question you might have and um, to, you know, discuss any topic you may think would be beneficial. This has been an episode of MD for Moms on the BBM Global Network, TuneIn Radio, and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Snyder, and until next time, be well, stay safe, please still wear a mask, even if you're vaccinated, you know, still also practice social distancing, enjoy life, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to MD for Moms with your host, Dr. Carly Snyder. Please join us each and every week for answers to the many challenging issues moms face today on the next episode of Dr. Carly's MD for Moms.
home to the BBM Global Network. The ideas, views, and opinions of this broadcast are those of the participants of the program and are not necessarily the ideas, views, and opinions of the BBM Global Network Company. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.